and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Joining me to talk about a movie about a fracturing Jewish family is The Rewind's honorary Jew, Josh Brown. <laughs> Josh, what's going on? Hey, um, again, let me just make it clear to the audience, right? He's assigning that label to me. I reject the label. I reject the label. Not <laughs> not because I'm not a friend of the Jewish people, unlike Kanye West. All right? You got to be e- easy. You got to be careful these days. You, you, just, you know, just, em- <laughs> just embrace us. And that's all you got to do. You're on- it's true. honorary. If you, guys, if you guys are embracing me, then I'm embracing <laughs> you. All right. And again, so honorary. I, if I had more time in the world, I would have learned Hebrew for this podcast. <laughs> I know he might be, he's already learned Navi for a podcast we have coming up in a couple of weeks, you know? So <laughs> God, I see you. I see you. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Fableman is the newest film from Steven Spielberg, a guy I'm sure most of you heard of. He co wrote it with Tony Kushner, who um, they co wrote a movie we talked about around this time last year in West Side Story. And they got to bed together again and decided, hey, we're going to make a movie. And this one is going to be kind of uh, honestly, I, w- I-, I almost instinctively said loosely, Josh, but the more I've listened to these interviews with Steven Spielberg, most of this shit happened. Um, and I, it's part of what I've kind of like actually found really interesting about like watching this movie and reading about it is like sometimes directors are kind of coy when they do these kind of movies and we're going to talk about them, like about what actually happened, what's real or what's not. And Steven Spielberg has been, you know, very, very upfront about the fact that a lot of this movie is just taken straight from his childhood. But I mean, you know, the family's called the Fablemans, not the Spielbergs. And it focuses a little bit on Sammy Fableman, who is the Steven Spielberg stand-in, who, you know, we open the movie as he's uh with his family going to the movies i think we're going to be i think it's his uh i think it's his first ever movie they're going to see cecil b demille's the greatest show on earth which is a former best picture winner in 1952 in new jersey uh a very much maligned best picture winner yeah i've come to i've never seen it but i've come to see i've come to understand that from covering from reading the coverage of this movie uh but there is a you know a notable scene in there there's a big train crash and um and uh young sammy fableman is you know just totally taken with this kind of scared kind of um excited and wants to kind of recreate it and gets his parents to buy him you know a an at-home train set for hanukkah and uh, every every night of hanukkah he gets another little carriage on the train and eventually uh he just starts filming different crashes so he can recreate it himself and uh just you know develops a love for filmmaking and then his family uh is including his his mom uh his mom mitzi played by michelle williams and his dad uh bert played by paul dano uh, they Bert Bert is a computer engineer, much like Steven Spielberg's father Arnold was. Uh, they'd have to move to Phoenix for his job, but at the same time, uh, Mitzi is uh, very very upset that they're leaving behind uh, Sammy's uncle Benny, who was played by Seth Rogen, a guy uh, who uh, Josh and I have talked about before on the podcast too, who Josh is quite fond of, who whose casting led me to believe that Josh incepted this movie into existence. Uh, <laughs> but basically, uh, B- Benny ends up going along to Arizona, and we come to learn, hey. Maybe he's closer to this family more so than like some of the other family members might care to admit and starts causing some problems with the family. And, uh, you know, uh, that young Sammy, who is still continuing his filmmaking uh, development, uh, comes to realize and, you know, causes a lot of different kind of, you know, conflicts and feelings in young Sammy. And that's all we'll go for now. And then we'll we'll get to the rest of the movie. I don't think we're really going to do a real spoiler section for this either, but I just didn't want to summarize the whole entire movie. But uh, what happens to Sammy? What happens to Sammy, Josh? 
Uh, what he a lot of things happen to Sammy. I don't know what you were getting at, but no, I was just like, I, I guess he grows up to be Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I suppose he does, but there's some other stops along the way that we will uh, that we will talk about. And uh, I should I should mention uh, uh, Sammy is played by Gabriel LaBelle, who is a who is a relative newcomer that was uh, just cast off the cast off the street. Uh, also appearances from uh, Judd Hirsch and uh, the great Jeannie Berlin and. Yeah, and uh, and some and some others who we will talk about. Uh, I I I'd forgotten I'd forgotten Jeannie Brun Jeannie Brun was in this movie until she showed Sheila up. Sheila Levine herself. I know. I know. Someone who like for someone who like has a actually surprisingly short filmography. Someone that Josh and I have talked about a lot. Uh, and just like the the things that she actually has done. Uh, and but, for the listeners, if you don't yeah. know who Jeannie Berlin is, she's an Oscar nominated actress from the seventies, but notably she is the daughter of Elaine May. Lane May, Oscar nominated for the Heartbreak Kid, also uh, plays Sid Peach on Succession. Uh, just like pops up in all kinds of uh, fun stuff. Still, even though she took like a twenty-five year hiatus from acting, she plays she plays uh, Bert's mom. And I, I, I guess uh, Josh, where I want to start with this because I mean I know like this is a movie that has been on your radar for quite some time and we were very excited to talk about it and there's a lot to delve into about it. But I guess the one thing I was kind of curious about because I know you liked it and I'm pretty sure you liked it more than. A lot of other movies of a similar genre, I would say, have come out the last few years where a lot of filmmakers have revisited their youth and decided to put it on camera, whether that be, you know, Alfonso Cuaron in Roma or um, Kenneth Branagh in Belfast. We have James Gray already this year with Armageddon Time. And I think there might be a couple I'm not even thinking of. And I mean, in some in Bardo. How could you forget about Bardo? I haven't seen Bardo, but I haven't heard great things. I'm not really excited about it, but I feel like there might even be a couple others. And like, and honestly, it's it's not that uncommon for directors to pull from their lives, but like they, they, this is a, a specific subgenre where they're pulling from their lives of, as youngsters. And I'm wondering, uh, why did this one stand apart for you? Okay, that's actually a question that I've been wrestling myself um, mm-hmm. because like on paper, you know, um, I was actually kind of like apprehensive about this a little bit going into it, just on the basis of all right, full. It seems like it seems too good to be true. Everything you heard about this movie, like you had to like temper your expectations, I guess. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Like full disclosure, like everybody knows, I, I'm probably Spielberg's biggest fan, which is a high claim to make for the most commercially successful <laughs> filmmaker of all time. But I, I, I think I think I'm in the run, right? And I was a little bit nervous just because all right you know we've had this type of subgenre before of like you know coming of age stories and also movies about the power of cinema and i think people are somewhat exhausted with that a little bit it can come across as self-indulgent and self-aggrandizing um but also the other you know and again it's it's kind of hard to watch like your hero to like do what he emits is a $40 million therapy session. Like, cause like if the movie sucks or whatever, you know, that person just put themselves in a very vulnerable position. Right. Um, but the other thing too about it is that there are prior Spielberg films that have, you know, metaphorically or um, in smaller doses tackle different aspects that this movie is going through. Right. Like his movies, have been about divorce. Um, I think up until this point, I think probably his two most closest movies that to being semi autobiographical uh, would be uh, Catch Me If You Can and E.T. Right. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of his movies deal with his personal life as is. Right. So when you strip the metaphor, 
what is there left to explore? And so what was nice about this movie is like there was a lot, um, despite the fact that, like, you know, I'm pretty familiar uh, with his history. It wasn't necessarily telling me anything I didn't know, but it was sort of the how. And I kind of get to why does this movie stand apart from the other movies this year that are pulling from a director's um, biography? And I just gotta just say, I think it's just because Steven Spielberg is just a pretty damn good narrative filmmaker. Like throughout the entire film, I think his just populist instincts, right, are just so innate that he can tell this story and also do so in a way that he's doing it a lot more nuanced and with a much more subtle hand than maybe like the marketing for his film is making it out to be that like um that i feel like it doesn't ever come across as the obnoxious self-aggrandizing uh biopic that it could have been you know yeah well i also like i guess i thought about that question too because i knew it was what i wanted to ask you and i guess i i, th I thought about like i mean i i guess i i feel like there's another one i'm forgetting but like i thought again i thought about Armageddon time but no, I thought about Belfast, Roma, and Armageddon time initially. I feel like there might be another one in this genre. I just am not thinking of. I feel like there's another one that's Empire of White this year. Is, is, is that is that supposed to be autobiographical for Sam Mendes? Yes and no. I think it's probably out of the bunch that we've listed. It's probably the least. It takes place in the like sort. I think it's a little bit closer to like Licorice Pizza, and that sure. it takes place in the same time period of his childhood, and maybe certain certain events are similar, but he's. The focus is on characters that are not himself. Right. Well, yeah. So, like, the same thing with Roma, where it's, like, it's not really yeah. focusing on the kids. And for Belfast, like, it is kind of focused on the kid, but it's such a young kid. Like, it's hard to really, like, get that mm -hmm. get that deep, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And and whereas, like, Armageddon Time, I think, is, like, a closer parallel, especially because it's a, it's a Jewish-American family where, like, the, the director, like, I mean, I think James Gray specifically said in, in, I think he said it in the interview he did on The Big Picture where he's like, I waited till my parents, but no, he didn't wait till his parents died. I think he, they were shooting it when his parents were alive, but they died before it premiered. But, like, Spielberg, the timing was pretty fortuitous, too. I think, like, uh, his dad died in 2020, and this, they, this went into production not long after that. Yeah. Um, and by the yeah. way, like a, a little bit of like a short history, if you don't mind me mm -hmm. saying, is that yeah. this has been something that has been lingering for a long time, um, where like in the 90s, uh, like in the late 90s and early 2000s, he wrote a draft of this called I'll Be Home with his sister Ann Spielberg. Um, but he had said at that time in the early 2000s that he doesn't he he would probably wait until his parents are no, were no longer with us um because he didn't want to offend them right um and then fast forward to like munich he meets tony kushner and they, as they're getting to know each other he tells a little bit of stories of his uh, autobiography his early life and tony kushner is the one that consistently keeps pushing him to like tell this story and then there's two like inciting incidents, which is in 2016 or 2017, uh, they released that Spielberg documentary that really goes in depth into his like family history and his parents' marriage. And and then like his mom, according to him, was like, yeah, you better make a movie about us. And then she passes away. And then during COVID, um, Spielberg, you know, like the rest of us, isolated, being contemplative. Um uh, and with West Side Story uh, being stalled, uh, he and Tony Kushner decide to make this movie right after his father passes. So I think like his father passing with both of his parents dead, like becomes the huge impetus. But it's something that I think had been brewing for a while. 
Yeah, they, they yeah they they were shooting within seven months of when Arnold died, at least according to Wikipedia, and it said they finished writing at the end of the lockdowns. And Arnold died in August 2020, so you think mm-hmm. end of lockdowns, August 2020, like they that was almost like kind of the push they needed, I suppose. And I mean, but like again, I I do have like I do have like some level of respect for like the fact that like both like. I mean, I think it's interesting. Like, I've, I've, in some of the interviews I've heard about his mom, like, I mean, like, he's, and I, I didn't watch the documentary. Apparently, like, they, they got into some of the stuff with his parents in the documentary, correct? And, like, yes. I think it's, I mean, I, and I guess that goes to, like, the artist spirit that we see that they portray Mitzi in the movie as having. Like, she's not going to be, like, af- afraid of something that's artistic just because it might not portray her in the best light, which I think is really interesting. But, like, um, at the, at, at, the same, at the same time, like, again, uh, I, I respect him and James Ray, like not being afraid to like put their parents on front street that way. Um, like, I mean, like, again, like you think of Belfast, like a movie I didn't dislike, but like definitely didn't probably like as much as like it's Oscar nominations would, uh, ex- would lead you to think would, 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 I would hope it would for the amount of Oscar nominations it got. Like, I mean, those parents are, are portrayed fairly impeccably, but I mean, again, when you're as young as the kid is there, you're going to see your parents in a different light than you are at the, maybe at the age they are in these two movies that came out this year. And I, so I think like, and, and then like, again, I, I'm not going to spend this podcast comparing this to Armageddon time, but I think there's very different in that, like they have different aims, even if there's a few, a few big similarities, but mainly like, look, Armageddon times, like it's James Ray processing a lot of his like guilt of, you know, and, uh, his white, uh, white privilege and, um, and, and even if it, though his family wasn't as rich as that character thinks he is like, he's, he's processing a lot of his privilege and doing it through this movie. And that that's, that's fine. I think he does it well here. It's like, Hey, this is a kid that's like dealing with a lot of his family strife through, you know, uh, f- uh finding his passion, falling in love with movies and all that. It, it's just, it's, it's just different enough. And that, again, those other, those other two movies we talk about very different perspective from the kind of kid they're coming from, or even if they focus on them And here, I just think there's a, just a very different way of attacking the subject matter than what James Gray does. So I just feel like, Hey, it feels like its own thing. And like, Hey, when you can move the camera, like steel Spielberg can, like, it's going to feel unique. So mm-hmm. I just think like, I think a lot of people were kind of cynical about it by the time it came out. Cause it was like kind of the last of all these to get released. But it's just like, again, when you can shoot things like Steven Spielberg can, and you're coming at it from an incredibly specific point of view. Cause as we said, look, most of this happened. And I talked to you a little bit about this uh, off the the air uh but like i mean you can't help but when you watch a movie like this of like wanting to know like what's real what's not and i and i i just thought so like i mean i googled i i, I did plenty of googling and wikipediaing after the movie and all that and it's like i mean m- most of this really happened especially i mean if, if you're taking spielberg at his word if you listen to like the interview he did with paul thomas anderson there was not a single thing he said on that that didn't really happen aside from like the second part of his conversation with uncle boris like basically he said like everything else is like straight from there and i'm like all right well that's cool i know you're coming at this from like a very very personal place and you're not changing much and it just it makes it feel all that much more vivid on top of like how like you can you can shoot this stuff and i think that just made it feel like really really special and really really personal but i think one important point you made was like hey like uh i mean yeah he's uh i i I, well actually i i I forgot how you put it but the fact is like he's basically showing the younger version of himself like just being fucking awesome at making movies from the time he's six years old. And it's like, this, oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you were, you were talking about it being self-indulgent. And like, yeah, it could be self-indulgent when you're watching this guy, like just be incredibly awesome at this thing from like the age of six. But like, if you, if you at least know enough about him to know, like he broke into the business really young, even if, as we might talk about a little bit, like he like feeds into the myth a little bit by like making this timeline of like Spielberg from the ages of like 19 to like 27 up until he made Jaws. Like, I think there's a little bit of like, 
it's a little unclear just how young he was doing some of the most impressive stuff up until he like made the stuff that really got put on TV. And like when he first broke into the studios and all that. But the fact is like he did it. It's indisputable. He was young when he like got his start. How young? I don't know. Cause dude, like there's some very funny stuff out there about how like, like just very respected film critics and people are like, put it out there. They just like matter of factly like, right. Like, Oh yeah. He was 19 when he directed Joan Crawford in the night gallery. It's like, not if you look at the year that thing came out, he was probably like 23 no, or something. You no, know? Yeah. Night gallery. Yeah. When he directs uh, Joan Crawford is when he's 22, but yeah, like what is interesting about this movie, right. Is that, you know, unlike other movies about artists, right. And you may see sort of like, you know, them going through the creative process and how maybe it was initially like a struggle or whatever in this film, as we said, like, he is presented as like a young savant and prodigy, right? And but we again, know like, he was, so it doesn't bother. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know that's the thing, and I think actually in this movie, how it's handled is actually in a very interesting way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so um, and let me back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. My personal belief about uh, Steven Spielberg, right, um, is that. Unlike some of like his other contemporaries, other filmmakers or whatever, like Steven Spielberg is a fucking cinematic savant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that if movies did not exist, right, I think he would have found a way to make it. Like, because um, like the things that like Spielberg does is very instinctual like when it comes to the camera blocking when it comes to infusing his movies with comedic beats making them inherently entertaining his direction of actors right like all these things just come very very naturally to him right and then when you look at his you know biography um as it stands he was um 22 when he directed his first professional actor and that professional actor was Joan Crawford, right? Like, um, like again, like he was the youngest director to be signed an exclusive contract with a major studio to direct television, right? Um, he was one of the first directors, like his generation was one of the first uh, uh, generation to pick up a camera and actually make movies when they're kids, right? Like he was a proto YouTuber before that was a thing, <laughs> you know? So, um, and also like, I, cool. and, and again, yeah, oh, sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say, so like, I think I, and I, I feel like I probably only half knew, I only, you, you, you know, a little, you know, a little bit more about the man than I do. And I, I knew some of that stuff. So I was able to kind of take some of this at face value, but at the same time, I think part of the reason why the movie works so well and why it doesn't come off as him just being like, look how fucking awesome I was from the age I was 12 uh, is because like, I think the movie is like, it, it shows, it shows Sammy struggling and it shows him and even in, in like, to to understand his gifts and 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 that goes beyond the final thing with like the beach party video and all that like he is like he's 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 struggling through like it's clear that he's talented but at the same time like you understand like how he's struggling to like harness his power and i think that's pretty interesting to like set that against like what's what's going on with his family yeah okay and that's what i think is interesting about this take about like an artist right Mm -hmm. because the, the kid sammy he's a prodigy but he's a prodigy amongst other prodigies, right? Like the whole family, right? Mm-hmm. His his dad is, you know, uh, like the top of his field in computer science, right? right? Like in real life, like his dad 
was like like literally in 2006 won like an honorary top prize in computer science uh you know was one of the you know key figures in the rise of IBM right and then his mom is this uh you know we're told in the movie like this classical pianist that you know could have had great things if it wasn't a fact that it's the 1950s and she sort of has to be domesticated right and i think it's sort of a movie about this family of prodigies who are not in control of their gifts, right? In the sense of the father, Bert, um, he is this, you know, incredible computer scientist, right? But he does not have the capacity to explain it, what he does uh, to the layman in plain, simple terms, right? Um, and when it comes to the mom, um, you know, because she's burdened with societal expectations for women in this time period, she cannot pursue her passion of um, playing music. And then when it comes to uh, Sammy, um, he is this talented filmmaker, but he has no control over um, what the impact of his images have on other people, right? Like, he is not really, he's just going, like, you know, his eye is just, uh, his camera is just naturally attracted to whatever captures his eye, right? And he doesn't know why, right? Um, and so... It's, it's all all, all, all the Benny, all the Benny Mitzi stuff. Like he doesn't even un, he doesn't. That's the thing. He doesn't he doesn't quite grasp what it is as it's happening. Like he, mm -hmm. he's drawn there, but he doesn't know what it is till he watches it back. Right. And so, like, like starting back with like the opening scene, right? Um, and like I will say, the opening shot of this movie is when like I was locked in, right? Hmm. Where is this incredible like subtle like tracking shot where you see this line of uh people going inside to the movie theater uh to see uh the greatest show on earth right and you catch up with um sammy and his parents in in line right and the camera has this interesting blocking technique where you're first seeing paul dano um playing his father um explain in highly technical terms what movies are right and clearly the kid does not understand his explanation right and then you hear the mom explain in much more emotional terms that like movies are like dreams or whatever right um and then you see uh them go inside the movie right uh, and it's kind of a little bit cheeky too because like you know with uh, the right before they go inside the movie, the camera goes to the marquee that says greatest show on earth, almost like this melodrama we're about to watch is the greatest show on earth. But anyway, um, I'm not sure about you, but like when watching the clip of the greatest show on earth where like the train is crashing, um, this movie that has been maligned as one of the worst best picture winners of all time, it looks kind of cool <laughs> in this movie. Have you seen it? I've never seen it, but yeah. like this movie made me want to see it. <laughs> um, um, but in in the beginning of the movie is basically uh, Sammy. He's transfixed by this image of the train crashing, and he's somewhat traumatized by it. And he gets a train set for Hanukkah, and he keeps crashing it to the dismay of his dad. But his mom kind of realizes that um, Sammy needs the like the reason why he's uh, crashing the train multiple times or whatever is he's trying to understand it in his own way. And by giving him a camera or whatever, he's now in control of it. Right. He's in control of like his fears. Right. And it's actually kind of a beautiful uh, setup when um, the mom Mitzi gives uh, uh, the camera to uh, Sammy for the first time, because it reminded me of uh, Richard Brody's review from the New Yorker and Richard Brody 
who's usually not high on Spielberg, uh, kind of famously. Um, he thinks the only good Spielberg movie is 1941. Um, had an inch, but like this movie, like this movie. Um, but like he had this uh, interesting uh, 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 critique of Spielberg that I know coming from him, it's a dig. But I, I, I actually think it's somewhat true, which is uh, if he's, he says, like, if he could sum up Spielberg's uh, uh, style of filmmaking, right, he would say that he took, like, the emotional drama of, you know, 50s and 60s television, but gave them the veneer of old-fashioned Hollywood filming, right? Um, and in the scene where Mitzi is giving us, uh, Sammy, the camera, you see these, like, TVs in the background. It's almost like a De Palma-esque shot of, like, you know, voyeurism and stuff what this guy is going to do right um and actually in brody's review one thing he's kind of you know which he, he was largely positive towards fablemans but one thing he noted was like he's kind of mad that television doesn't play as much of a role in the movie as movies because he thinks that is just if not more so informative in in terms of spielberg's aesthetic right but um but yeah like in the movie in the in the opening uh minutes of the film it's established that this kid has a like a, a unique gift for filmmaking because once he like captures his train on on um on celluloid he actually does a pretty good job of replicating what he had just seen in the movie right but it also sets up the dynamic of the family life where you have this battle between these almost two complementary forces of the dad being uh, uh, the engineer and the mom being this like artist and uh, sort of captures sort of the economy of Spielberg himself, which is that he's this technically gifted filmmaker, but who is also, in my opinion, uh, the greatest human uh, living humanist uh, director working today. And I also in the opening scenes, it sets up this, this, this um, dynamic between the two parents and their friend, uh, played by Seth Rogen, uh, Uncle Benny, who's not really their uncle, but just Bert's best friend, right? And you see at the dinner table, Sammy's dad, I think, is getting his one of his first promotions or whatever, and he's explaining this achievement that they did at work, and um, he it, he can't really explain it. It's going over the heads of everybody at the table, but his friend, uh, played by Seth Rogen, um, is able to break it down in the most layman of terms and then the wife even says oh um i like it when he says it or something like that um and and it's one of those interesting things about the character of mitzi where it's like she recognizes that her husband's a genius but she can't even fully appreciate it she needs his best friend to kind of explain why he is great you know um and it's also kind of foreshadowing with janine berlin here, the uh, uh, Bert's mom, uh, the grandma, uh, she's uh, very hostile to Seth Rogen, constantly questioning, like, why is he a frequent presence in this house? She's also kind of hostile to Mitzi, too. Like, yeah. yeah. And, like, I mean, kind of goes to the fact that, like, probably wasn't meant to do the kind of life that she's leading, and she's kind of loitering over her, uh, over over the dishes as she pulls them out of the oven. And, like, I th I'm pretty sure it gives a little bit of a disapproving look the first time that she has to lift her plate while they uh, clear the clear the table of, like, disposable uh, plates and with a, with a paper tablecloth. And, uh, and uh, yeah, like, Jeannie Berlin, like, makes the most of her uh, very limited screen time to get all of her judgmental looks off, for sure. And then the other thing, too, that it sets up in, like, the opening, like, 20 minutes of the family is that 
this is a Jewish family in a sea of wasps, right? Like, you know, this is a post-World War II America. Like, uh, after they come back from seeing The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, young Sammy notes, like, you know, the, there's a lot of Christmas lights everywhere, but our house is the only one that doesn't have the Christmas lights. Great. Funny. It's fu funny that, like, in this, I mean... I don't know exactly uh, how much I wanted to talk about that, but it's like the, Arizona is where them being the minority is like highlighted the least, but you'd think like in like uh, suburban New Jersey and Northern California, like there'd be more Jews than there would be in Arizona. But yeah. Actually, Spielberg has actually an interesting explanation for that. So like okay, he does, I've, yeah. I've not seen. Yeah. He says that like um, he didn't really experience the brunt of anti-Semitism until he got to California. Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing you have to keep in mind with California that and he even would say like, hey, within the film industry, once I was in Los Angeles, I didn't really experience that much anti-Semitism. Right. Um, so he's not saying like the film industry itself is anti-Semitic, but he was saying like on the outskirts of Los Angeles and California, the one thing that you have to keep in mind is that during the 50s and 60s. Right. Um, uh, California was much redder than it is today, right? Uh, Ronald Reagan, at the time of Sammy, when Sammy's in high school in 1964, is now the governor of California, right? This is California that um, Richard Nixon was recently the senator of, you know? Um, so I think that sure. somewhat makes a lot more sense, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, and I, and I don't doubt that there'd be anti-Semites there. It was just kind of funny that like there were, mm -hmm. there there were, there were fewer allusions to him being the minority in Arizona than there were in New Jersey or definitely in California. But um, and there's and there's some interesting things in his like biography that is kind of omitted here that I actually thought would have been interesting when it comes to him and anti-Semitism. Like there's a story when he was uh, a kid, the neighbors were like saying like, you know, like the Spielbergs are going to hell or stuff like that or whatever. And so he snuck out late at night and smeared pin peanut butter on their like windows and <laughs> with for and his mom approved. Um, and then there's another story that's not in the movie where like, like Spielberg is playing with his childhood friends and like his grandfather is calling him, but by his like Hebrew name, Hebrew named uh, Shmuel, Shmuel, and he's ignoring him and like denying, like, I, I don't know that guy. Um, and there's an, even another one too where like Spielberg says that he learned math because like um, some of his relatives who were Holocaust survivors were like showing him like the numbers on like the wrists and stuff that was imprinted upon them by the Nazis, um, mm. which didn't make the movie, but I kind of thought would have been interesting. So I guess. I'm kind of curious because we talked about kind of both both of his parents and how they kind of like ultimately informed like who he would be. But I, I am curious then, how did you come away from this film feeling about just the depictions of, of Bert and Mitzi uh, and how Paul Dano and Michelle Williams did? And I mean, recreating people that we know are based on real people, but who you and I really personally don't really probably I haven't seen that much footage of I don't know how much footage is of other parents in the documentary you might have come into this with a little more baggage than I did but like what did you how did you ultimately feel about like how these people kind of ultimately portrayed the people that obviously had like a huge influence on a filmmaker that means so much to you yeah and it's kind of funny like their divorce is probably one of the most pop culturally significant divorces of all time yeah and, and i don't feel like i fully grasped that until i started reading about the movie i mean like so i so you know I, you and you both you and i like 
as I'm sure a lot of people did, took advantage of like um, Jaws and ET playing in theaters earlier this year, and went mm-hmm. back and, and went back and saw them. And I and I had not seen either. I had not seen ET honestly probably since high school, and Jaws in like at least a few years. Um, but like, and by the way, D. Wallace, the mom of that movie, kind of has the same like pixie cut as uh, as Mitzi in this film. Oh, see, I don't, I didn't even remember that. But like, the one thing I remembered that jumped out to me from ET that I didn't remember from the last time I saw it, and I told all my friends when we left ET was like, "Wow, that mom is really going through it, huh?" <laughs> and, and it's like, am I, am I just now grasping that because I'm old and it never even occurred to me? Because like, I don't think that. I mean, I obviously like some allusions to them like being divorced are mentioned in ET, and like I know from now reading it up that like, hey, the the alien is like, you know, kind of like a whole thing. Like Spielberg as a kid when his parents got divorced, like made an imaginary friend or whatever but like i don't think i fully like kind of i i, I don't think i fully grasped but it was like honestly something i was going off of his uh going off directly of his childhood i did not know that but like i just knew like when i went back and watched it i was like oh wow like the mom is like the dad the dad might not be a physical presence in the movie but he's there just because the mom is just like making all of these comments or just like clear how rough of a time she's having throughout and it's like so all of that stuff is 100% present there, and people talk about it, obviously, with Close Encounters or in Catch Me If You Can. I think those mm-hmm. are, like, kind of the big three that people have been mentioning with it. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that, like, it's there everywhere, and he's like, all right, now I'm just going to tackle it head on. Yeah, no, like, and, and, and we'll get to this in, in a minute, but, like, how, like, this film is sort of, like, a skeleton key or it helps, like, inform, like, your viewings of other films and uh, um, or make that you reevaluate them in, in a different yeah. light. Or yeah, and better explain Spielberg a bit. But um, back to your question about like the uh, performances. So like in the trailer, right? Like I was a little bit nervous about Michelle Williams. Not that I dislike her as an actor, but I, I, she's a great actress. And just by the scenes, like I still think of her devastating like <laughs> um, a moment in that film. But in the trailers, it, it seemed like a very broad, over the top performance, right? But in the movie, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by how modulated it is throughout. Like, I, I thought it was um, much more subtle. But to me, the real standout of the movie is Paul Dano. Is that, like, I think this is probably one of the most unsung Spielberg, like, characters in any of his films. And probably one of the least appreciated. Because, like, what happens to this father figure, I'm like, he does not deserve <laughs> all the things that comes to him during this movie. Um, I think there's a quiet dignity that Paul Dano brings to the character where, like, all right, you know, in the movie, the father's presented less sensitive towards his uh, um, uh, son's uh, uh, passion uh, than, say, his mom. But overall, like, you know, you, you get the sense that he's a caring and very supportive uh, dad and this brilliant dad at, at that um, um, but he cannot connect to both his wife and kids in the same way as his best friend can you know and I think like the moments in the film like especially towards the very end with what happens to Paul Dano and his evolution in the film I think it's very devastating you know and I and I, and I just sort of I, 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 I related to him on some level well, I think the thing that impressed me most about him, and like you're saying, he's not presented as, he's not presented as, like being the most sympathetic to Sammy's ambitions, and it's just a running theme throughout the movie. He keeps calling it a hobby, and Sammy yeah. does not appreciate that. But in context, right, we can understand why, right? Like it's the 1950s, and as we like kind of mentioned before, like film schools were like in their 
infancy, right? They had not even like existed prior when like yeah. Uh, I don't think that the term film school is not even said in the movie. It, yeah, I think, like you know, and but like the thing is, and I guess I mean it's I guess kind of informed by the fact that like I understood watching it like yeah like what is a dad in that situation just gonna like how, how is he supposed to like even conceive of like the, his son having a career for this like it's it's so foreign like how it's it's not even that clear cut in 2022 how you break into being a filmmaker you know what i yeah, mean there's, there's so many paths so it's like i i guess i was just impressed I, I guess i was just impressed by the fact that they clearly like you know in a in a lot of lesser uh, lesser versions of a story like this the dad is just like total heel and uh, a hindrance to what the, our hero wants to achieve. And I, you're set up to think that's how it's going to go. And mm-hmm. they have Bert express or they have Bert express any, the skepticism throughout the movie. But at the same time, like you understand why he would be skeptical when he's like, kind of just like taking a traditional career path. Like how do you even conceive of how one becomes a filmmaker? Like and that combined with Paul Dano's performance, I guess it was just like, you, in theory, you should like not really like this guy and like, or even maybe like dislike him for like not really fully like getting what his son wants to do. But I never quite felt that way. It was just like it just it just felt perfectly modulated and uh, in in a way that I wasn't expecting. I just thought he was gonna like maybe turn into a little bit of a monster because again, until I after the movie, I didn't realize like how closely this was hewing to real life. So I just thought like, oh, maybe this to like make this feel like a more conventional story. They're going to make him seem like more of the more of the bad guy in this in this family. And it, it never got to that point for me because I think like Paul Dano knew like where to where to bring it to. Yeah. And, and even in real life, right, the real life uh, uh, father figure of Arnold Spielberg, I think is underappreciated. Right. So like um, Spielberg's biographer, like went back to his like childhood home, like years before this movie came out, right back in the 90s, right, went to his childhood homes in Arizona, and California, talked to childhood friends, um, and, and pretty people who were close to Spielberg at the time. And a lot of like Spielberg's like closest friends, like the, the, that he made movies with, which say like no Arnold was like the one who was like very much like like there when we were making the movies like Arnold was constantly there like you know helping with the technical aspects of the film like he did get Spielberg like his editing system and stuff like that like um and 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 then like the other part one of my favorite moments in the film right so throughout the film, like, you know, Spielberg or Sammy is putting on these uh, movies for his friends and family. And you see, like, you know, like um, uh, Paul Dano, like he's supportive in that moment. Like he's cheering it on uh, just as everybody else. But there's he's impressed moment... from a technical standpoint, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this one moment where they, they actually connect. Right. It's when um, Sammy is making like a Western. Right. And he realizes that um, uh, the bullets in it don't look real, right? And he comes up with a solution um, to make them real. And his father is just so impressed by the technical acumen that his son is doing. He just wishes that it could be applied to like his field of math and science, right? Instead of movies, right? And then that movie, that, that's a moment in the film um, amongst many that actually kind of connected with me, um, which is like, uh, I know you get annoyed when like I, I plug my photography, but um, but like in this case, like um, I remember like my dad, um, he uh, uh by the way, my dad I have a good relationship, very supportive father, but um, uh, but my dad like he installs security cameras for a living, 
all right? Um, and me and my dad, though, we don't really talk about, like, our personal lives or anything like that. The things that we kind of connect to the most is mostly we talk about politics, right? But um, one of the few moments, and again, my dad's not like a movie person or anything like that, but one of the few moments I ever had with my dad where we really connected over something was like my uncle left a drone um, at our house. And my dad was thinking of all the potential for like surveillance that you could use the drone for. And I was thinking of like, oh my God, you could use this drone for like overhead shots and stuff like that. And like, like it was a very similar moment to like like Sammy and his father just like bonding over just like the technical aspects of filming filmmaking, but they're coming from it from two different places. Oh, you were gonna say you bonded with your dad when you watched uh, Sidney Lumet's The Anderson Tapes. <laughs> <laughs> no, my my to give you an idea of like who my dad is. He's much closer to like the Gene Hackman character from the conversation. Like oh, that, okay. that, 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 that's his demeanor and that's his profession. <laughs> but for, unlike him, he would not, see, he would not see like the greater harms of why like um, this is security, the surveillance states might be uh, problematic. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's, just, it's, I mean, God, it's, I mean, it must just be such a, a very complex conversation. Cause as you and I talked about offline, like, I mean, uh a lot of this stuff is murky with that 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 range of him from that age and his relationship with his dad there's this weird thing about his dad having like a 15-year estrangement from the family and him like maybe just like uh wrongfully blaming him because of uh, some wrongful idea of masculinity spielberg had in his head and uh and like a lot of that are just like there's there's some version of the truth out there and like it's it's who knows exactly what it is but like i mean it doesn't, and it doesn't necessarily completely line up if you do any reading about what his relationship with his dad was from that time where his family, his parents actually split up to like, uh, I don't know, like the next 20 years of his life. It's not that clear, but like, it seems like it is clear that they lived together at some point in Los Angeles whenever Spielberg actually went there and that like they had some other kind of estrangement. And those are the only two things that seem everyone can kind of agree upon. So you don't really know. But based on like Paul Dano's performance, you can and in what this movie shows, you can kind of get where that's coming from because you understand that like like you said, Bert probably doesn't deserve it, but like Bert brings it kind of on himself anyway by like not by being the guy that's like kind of afraid of conflict, still loves Mitzi at the end of the day and wants to like try and do whatever he can to make everyone happy, even if it's at the expense of his own happiness. And uh, and I mean, damn, it's 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 pretty moving, and I think Paul Dano pulls it off um but yeah and by the way like kind of getting it back like you know things are heading for the worst for like uh uh, uh Bert, right and then again it, it sort of escalates with each move so when they you know the beginning of the movie takes place when like uh sammy is like a really young kid right in new jersey and then the family has to move to arizona because uh Bert gets a promotion and um mitzi's like hey like you know like Bernie, his, uh, Benny, his, like, friend, um, is sort of like an uncle to the family, right? Like, he's there all the time. That The kids treat him like an uncle and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, when they move to Arizona, like, uh, Mitzi is like, what are we going to do about uh, uh, Benny? Can you get him a job there? And which he does, right? But, and again, it, it doesn't quite raise alarms or whatever. Um, but, it, uh, but, you know. It, it sort of sets up uh, that dynamic. So they go to Arizona and it's revealed that Uncle Benny com comes with them, right? And then um, 
um, during the Arizona sequence, there's this great moment where young Sammy, he goes to the movies and he sees um, both, uh, uh, um, um, well, in the, in the Arizona sequence, uh, I believe that's when they're doing the World War II movie, right? And it's somewhat yeah. in, inspired by uh, Bert's experiences, right? Uh, but in Arizona, uh, they go to uh, this camping trip, right? And there's, again, this quiet, devastating moment where Bert is trying to teach the family how to make a fire, um, but they get sidetracked by Mitzi playing on a tree, and then Uncle Benny joins them, and he's having fun with all the kids and stuff, and nobody's paying attention to Bert making the fire. Like, nobody can appreciate that. And then things get kind of Freudian <laughs> um, later that night when uh, Mitzi uh starts dancing in front of headlights in like a see-through dress and young sammy like just seeing the potential of how cinematic this moment is takes out his camera and is filming it but he's between both his dad and his dad's best friend oogling his mom <laughs> um during the sequence right um but that footage is gonna be a, a turning point later in the movie. What happens is uh, 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 Mitzi's uh, mom dies and Mitzi falls into one of her many depressive uh, uh, stupors, right? And so, um, and then at this point in the movie, it seems like um, the marriage is getting a little bit more and more strained uh, between her and Bert, right? So um, Bert, you know, who... Initially, it's not quite supportive of, of uh, Sammy. Sammy wants, has been wanting this editing machine for the longest time period. And then uh, uh, Bert gets it for him, but asks him for a favor. And that favor is, can you make a, a, a movie out of the camping footage for your mom? Because it might cheer her up. Um, and, you know, Sammy, at this point, he's like a teenager and you know, like teenagers, it's both like they can be perceptive, but also and, and they're very sensitive when it comes to their own emotions, but not so sensitive when it comes to others. Right. And we, the audience, kind of see the subtext of this scene where it's almost slightly pathetic, uh, not to be too harsh about it, where like Bert is kind of pleading to his son. Um, can you make uh, uh, your mom happy? Because I can't. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of like the two people that can are Uncle Benny and Sammy, right? And so Sammy eventually relents to the pressure and then he starts editing the footage and it's revealed that um, his mom might be having an affair with the best friend. Well, so let me ask you then, like, I guess, because again, I think Paul Dano is great in all those moments. Is there a certain moment in the movie where, like, whether, whether it be when Sammy shows... Mitzi, the footage that he has come across, or uh, whether maybe that piano, that that piano scene in the living room of their home. Oh yeah, that piano scene is is kind of weird, right? Like, uh, yeah, my Mitzi mom, my mom kept saying it there, the camping trip, other places. She's like, before it ever actually like Sammy discovered the footage, like I mean, not that it was that hard to pick up on. My mom just kept whispering me during the movie, There's something going on with Benny and Mitzi. Yeah, mom, I get it. I get it. Okay, let's just keep seeing where it's going. Um, but like, there's different moments in there, and I'm wondering because uh, I mean, obviously, I think that's a big turning point in the movie, and that on, on like one of the most memorable scenes that's been put to film this year when Sammy edits all that stuff together. Uh, but mm -hmm. like, is there a moment where Michelle Williams' performance clicked with you uh, more so than it had been before? Because I'm 
I, I honestly was like, I mean, I, I would not say she was not good in this movie, but like it was not something that like it was I, I was more I was more kind of taken with and impressed by what Paul Dano was doing. Same. But I don't necessarily blame Michelle Williams for that because again, I think like God, it had to have been hard to take instruction on what to do. But I'm wondering, like, as I've heard different things about this in the coverage I've read, was there a moment where, like, it kind of clicked for you? Because, again, I don't think you would disagree with me in that, like, I wouldn't say she was bad, but, like, uh, it's 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 a harder performance to kind of get on the same wavelength with because, like, she's being asked to do a lot. Yeah. Um, there is actually a scene. The scene where she um, is shown the footage uh, yeah. by Sammy. So prior to that, like, you know, once Sammy makes the discovery, right? And if we could talk about that discovery for a second, I yeah. think the uh, scene in which he's like editing the footage is so beautifully put together. It's well edited. Um, but it's also like not how I would have expected. Like I had known going into the in, into this movie that like, you know, it had been sort of spoiled to me that like, the like you know he he makes a discovery while editing his film that his mom's having an affair right but oh, how, I, didn't, I, was, I, 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 I didn't even know to expect that yeah so like um how i was picturing it was completely different right um i was picturing it in a lot more bombastic way right but how it's presented and it's presented like sort of like spielberg's version of blow up um and how it's presented is like it's synced with his mom playing the classical music. It's like this very subdued, lovely like thing um, where, you know, he's editing the footage and it's sort of matching with like his mom who's, you know, in the hallway, like playing on her piano with this like low key melody. Right. But the scene in which I think that like Michelle Williams um, it, it is doing really good work is the scene where he shows the footage and is completely wordless you see the facial expression on her face as she sort of, and again, it's all wordless, it's all through facial expression, where you see the heartbreak where, you know, she sees the footage and she's like devastated. And also with the character, it, it is presented in a nuanced way. Like in the actual footage, you don't actually see like her and Benny kiss or anything like that, but it is very clear that they have like this emotional affair with each other. And I don't even think Mitzi is like, fully aware that she's doing it. And I think it's kind of clear with that. But even earlier in the film, there's a scene where it's in the very beginning of the movie where um, there's a tornado that's happening. And then she like drags the kids and starts chasing this tornado or whatever. And it's just clear that, oh, she has like early signs of like mental illness or like going through clear signs of depression, right? Um, it, but it probably wasn't so clear, especially in that time in the 1950s when people weren't as woke about mental health as they are yeah, I think it's perfectly fine that they don't really ever explain it because it probably never would. They probably never would have gotten to the bottom of it in those times. Yeah. Well, they well, there's a scene in the movie where like, all right, after Sammy has um, discovered this revelation about the affair or whatever, and uh, the marriage is becoming more and more strained, he and his dad get in a fight. And it's very clear that Sammy wants that the Sammy and the dad both know what he's talking about. Like he knows that, like, uh, um, you know, that like basically his wife doesn't love him anymore. And Sammy's almost about to like say that shit or whatever that like, hey, you know, uh, um, your wife is having an affair right now and you're not doing anything about it. Or it's like and daring then, him to say it. Yeah. And then uh, she out of nowhere announces like, hey, I'm going to therapy to like put a kibosh to it. So 
But yeah, like I, I, I do think her performance, like while it could be big, I think it's a lot more modulated, um, and she walks that delicate tightrope throughout. Yeah, I just couldn't help but thinking during the whole time, like you know, God, because uh, like I mean, because basically Arnold would have been around for like a few years. Arnold was around a few years longer than her, and like not, and not that like you know, Arnold at a hundred is going to be the same as Arnold in his late thirties, early forties. But at the same time, like, um, I feel like, I don't even know if it has anything to do with his mom being gone for longer, but like the fact, the fact is like his memories of her are more distant and in giving instruction, like apparently like, I mean, they're, they're, they said they did, they pulled out every stop. Like she was watching the home videos and he interview of his mom that she could She's doing everything. And probably, yeah. Well, I, Oh, I didn't see that, but like, um, but it probably like just probably taking a lot of instruction from Spielberg on like, hey, what this woman is like, and it's like, you know, I I, I don't want to say he like overcoached her, but I can understand where she's like getting instruction from like a lot of different places, and like why it might just feel like, hey, this person is like giving a big performance at times because she's trying to probably capture something that's being described to her, and so it's like I don't blame Michelle Williams for that, but like it it felt like more of like a more of like a lot of different mannerisms in search of a very particular thing as opposed to like whatever Paul Dana was doing. And, and also like at the same time, like, Hey, like maybe this is just like some kind of Jewish bias in me, but I'm like, uh, I, I, she's just like a blonde hair, blue eyed woman. Like I, I'm having trouble like envisioning her as like this very specific Jewish mother. And I, maybe that's what Spielberg's mom did look like, but it was just like, I, it's like, she's supposed to be like Jewish mom, but again, she's out of place in that role for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But like at the same time, I was just like, I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be getting there. But like, she's such a talented actress that like, yeah, and a lot of those later moments in the movie, like it's gonna it's gonna hit you regardless, you know. So yeah, and by the way, can I mention like, all right, the um, this uh, Terry Gross interview that Spielberg mm-hmm. did in promotion of this movie, right? Um, so you know, in the movie, Sammy, rev- it, you know, discovers that his mom is quietly having an affair with Bert's best friend, Uncle Ben, right? And um, in the Terry Gross interview, she was like, okay, here's the thing I, uh, or maybe it was like the Leslie's, yeah, it was a Terry Gross interview, where she's like, here's the thing I don't understand, right? So you knew your mom was having this affair, right? Um, and there's a scene towards the end of the movie where um, the family, where, you know, Bert and Mitzi announced to the kids that, um, that they're going to have a divorce or whatever. And Mitzi's going to go back to Phoenix to live with um, uh, uh, Benny. Uh, Benny after they have moved to California. And and he and the kids like clearly see what's up or whatever. And and Bert is like, no, no, no. I, I, I like he's taking the fall. Right. And in the Terry Gross interview, she's like, OK, you knew the secret. Right. You knew he was taking the fall for her. Why were you so mad at him instead of her? And um, in in the interview, Stephen was talking about, he's like, you know, look, I think, you know, it was the 50s and 60s, right? And um, uh, there is, you know, there's these social constructs of the masculine ideal. And he was referring to like the movie Rebel Without a Cause, where in that movie, the dad is constantly emasculated by his wife and like there's a scene where like James Dean just like yells at his dad like saying like why are you taking this shit from her right and he said like I kind of felt the same way about my dad right where I just in my head I just viewed him as weak that he was just being walked over by her and that if he had some pushback maybe the marriage could be saved 
right? Um, and so I think that's why I was so like hostile towards my dad. Um, and once again, I'm like, wow, you viewed your dad as weak when he was a World War II veteran. <laughs> like he is a combat. He was too big of a nerd to see combat, like you said, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um but well, but yeah. No, like that was just basically what I'm saying, where it's like, um, and it kind of taps into like we talked about earlier about how like this film feels like a skeleton key for like other Spielberg movies, and it can it kind of reveals a lot in my view, in my in in in, in my estimation, in that like, okay, this explains why all Spielberg films are about masculinity to some degree or another. Like you know, he's you know on the one end you have like him watching the dynamic between him and his dad, and then you also get into the later years in California where he's being bullied by other guys. Then you know it also kind of explains why a lot of Spielberg movies are very sex averse. You know, yeah, does he even have like a how many movies? Is, can you probably count on one hand how many movies he has where the lead is female? Huh? Yeah, um, and even the movies that are with a female like color purple right that is a movie about like toxic masculine masculinity being passed down to these like abusive fathers right or even in the post where it's about a woman having to cope in, in, in a man's world right yeah. um and so uh or even west side story which you know like it kind of explains why like he humanizes chino so much in that movie um because his dad is sort of the chino of this um and, you know, and then another thing, too, that I think it kind of illuminates it as well when it comes to, like, the mom character, I kind of view the mom as sort of like a stand-in for John Williams, where it kind of explains, like, why, um, you know, like, Spielberg's uh, uh, collaboration with John Williams is so iconic as it is, because he grew up with this mom who was this classical pianist, and it kind of explains, like, why he has such a command of classical music and typically doesn't you know, have like contemporary needle drops in his movies or anything like that, right? Um, but all right. Well, so you've talked about why this movie is like, you know, and a lot of his are about masculinity to some extent, and like how, you know, uh, Bert is like maybe not that's not just like your stereotypical masculine male of those times. And and by the um, way, there is like a to me like there's a Spielberg archetypical archetypal masculine male in his movies, right? He tends to favor um the smart competent uh like you know like you have brody um and jaws or even how indiana jones compared to other 80s action heroes he's not about brawn he's about uh being the smart professor you know what i mean like he tends to there's a there's a spielberg masculine ideal that i think is somewhat modeled after him and his father sure but i don't think uh you know which i i don't disagree but i think that makes him all the more interesting that like yeah I don't think Benny is any of those other archetypes either. So mm. what do you think? Cause I don't, I, I even though we did a movie, I, I did a podcast and movie. I adore shit over like three and a half years ago now in long shot. Uh, I, I don't know if we've actually talked about a Seth Rogen movie other than that. I know you love Seth Rogen. Mm -hmm. What, what do you think about how he deployed him here? Cause I, as I, 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 from what I understand, from what I've seen, at least you say in your letterbox review on this, he found a different side of him. Yeah, no. Um, by the way, like, again, this is like a match made in, he in heaven for me. Like, Spielberg's my favorite director, and Seth Rogen is one of my favorite actors, right? Um, and I really do think he um, understands Rogan's likability and weaponizes it here. And I think it's actually interesting what you just said. Like, he is not, like, you know, 
this Chad compared to Bert, right? Like they're two nerdy <laughs> dudes, right? Um, which is what I find even funnier, right? Is that, you know, it, it's actually a very dialed down Seth Rogen performance where you could probably feel like he, he it's not the usual improv Seth Rogen performance that Ooh. you would expect. Like, I think he is adhering more to the script that, you know, Tony Kushner wrote um, than going off. Well, I was just looking at it. Uh, on letterbox you've have you never seen take this waltz i have not seen take this Waltz, but i know this is like a i've seen like 10 minutes of it but i know this well, is it's him funny... and michelle williams are a couple but like their marriage yeah. falls apart yeah um, yeah yeah, so yeah, it'd, be, yeah, yeah. It'd, be, it'd be funny to see i'd be curious to see what you thought of that because like it, it's kind of like because it came out in like 2011 so it was like at a point yeah. where like before like even jobs like before seth rogan and like started like kind of going out there with other filmmakers in a different way like she sarah Polly was like the, the first ones going to do something different yeah, that's the first dialed down Seth Rogen performance. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing too is like uh, Spielberg said that he cast Michelle Williams off of Blue Valentine in <laughs> Fosse Verdon, which like makes yeah. total sense with the sense. domestic yeah. strife and that thing, and like Fosse Verdon being something where she's obviously doing something more creatively. So yeah, kind of made sense. And then and like and like funny, like I, I I have not heard him talk about like why he cast Paul Dano, but like Wild Wildlife is a movie that like uh it's has, very like, similar to this movie. Yeah, yeah, in some ways, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um. But with Rogan, as you said, like he is, it, it's one of those things like where he's not too different from uh, um, Bert, right? It like the thing is like compared to Bert, right? He is this funny, jovial guy, right? But like I think outside of that house or whatever, you wouldn't really think that like he's you know like the most charismatic, funny, like the Seth Rogan that we know or whatever. It's just by comparison to the more uptight, humorless Bert. Uh, he stands out a little bit you know what i mean and and so and and so that's why i find it very interesting but yeah and there's a great moment towards the end of the film that i think is very devastating and it's sort of what i kind of like a lot about spielberg is that like his humanism is that there's no villains in this movie right his parents have a complicated marriage and to a certain extent the seth rogan character is a, a is a home wrecker but there's a scene towards the end of the film when you know, the marriage is over and it's somewhat clear that like Uncle Betty probably knows that Steven knows about like their affair or whatever. And um, uh, and like uh, Sammy is uh, buying like a camera or giving up his camera while like um, Benny is buying like this expensive one, which he eventually gives to Sammy. And at first it seems like, oh, maybe uh, Uncle Benny's trying to buy off uh, Sammy so he could be quiet or whatever. And it's no, it, it's genuine, like, hey, you can hate me all you want. I'm sorry what happened. But I, you know, like, this is a person who was in his life uh, since the time he was a baby. And it's very clear that Uncle Benny cares about this kid. Um, and it's, that's the thing that I, and it's throughout the entire movie where you see these characters are a lot more complicated and nuanced than, probably in a more conventional film yeah i guess um i i i it's something i thought seth rogan like was fully capable of and like you know <laughs> i because it's because in a lot of that part of the film it's so much from sammy's perspective and <laughs> uh and you're you know that like uh benny is gonna put on like the friendly face whenever he's in front of him but like i, I what i was getting at when i was talking about what i had read what you wrote in your i think in your letterbox review is like spielberg just kind of knows how to deploy like or you said he weaponized rogan's likability and mm -hmm. 
and that and that, and that kind of and, and that, that that kind of made sense to me in so much as like it's it, it's really challenging the audience in a movie that like yeah overall is like uh a fairly friendly family friendly and if you go to see seth rogan you're going to expect a certain kind of guy but at the same time it's like putting making benny that kind of way and it's like you know likable in some sort of seth rogan ways but more square in uh in more uh and just more wholesome on the surface like it, you understand why like fuck, everything bert knows like uh he can only be you can, you can only be so bitter when he's that likable uh and yeah I, I think it, it's like, yeah i, just think, I think that's what smart. We, uh like all right not to get too 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 personal right um it, which i feel like in in this movie it's hard not to because i think there's you know like a lot of things that people can have an in it uh maybe mm-hmm. but like um you know i'm not sure about you but um there was once in my life where like i lost to another guy that was like very 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 similar to me right and i remember like um like the times where i've maybe lost to a person that was the exact opposite of me it was easier to deal with because i'm like oh, oh yeah okay. for sure yeah where it's like all right if, if if that's what you're looking for all right then then that makes sense and i'm not that right but when it's like we're that similar it's even more frustrating right because it's like what is it like um that you don't like about me and so yeah i think and then on top of it it's his best friend and then there's a very devastating moment where it's like okay um you know bert and also think about all the things that bert has done for benny it's clear that if it wasn't for bert he'd be still stuck in new jersey and probably in a lower level job right um but like there's a time when they're about to move to california and and um mitzi's like can we like bring uh, uh benny he's like no like i'm going to this completely different company um i have to like you know start on a good foot i can't just like you know uh, uh, try to push my best friend in there of the minute I get there, but also like I've already done enough for him. Like uh, I pulled him this far. Like, <laughs> and it's very clear at that point. Like, it's not that like she she's trying to like you know uh, 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 that there's much more of an ulterior motivation. And then at this point, it's like Bert is also trying to prove to himself that he doesn't need Betty, right? Um, and actually, in real life, uh, according to Stephen, uh, when uh, his mom le- left his dad, he she was actually married to un- the real life Uncle Benny far longer than she was to Arnold. Yeah, I heard that also, and I'm um, and yeah, it's just it's it's just such an interesting way to like depict a love triangle. Um, yeah, and I it's cool that he found a way to do that within like a like a, a mostly like you know family-friendly movie um yeah and not only that but they by the way by the way speaking of the love triangle it's Mm -hmm. you know we mentioned that we alluded this uh before about like um uh uh the scene at the fireplace where you know his mom's in a see-through dress and uh sammy's in between him and his dad oogling his mom but what what's he you know what's even if you really wanted to pull back even more right um and especially in comparison to other spielberg films like like ai where like there's this weird oedipal complex between the robot son uh with the mom right Mm -hmm. and it's about can your mom love love you right 
Um, it's like, <laughs> and like, you know, how like adoring and sympathetic uh, he is towards his mom. It's like, maybe that love triangle, if you really want to read into it even more, maybe there's a third, there's a fourth person that in that thing as well. <laughs> um, um, uh, not to, not to, uh, uh, make something uh, more creepy than it is, but, um, but at that point, so like in uh, one, oh, one thing I wanted to note, like, so when we go to California, right, he's working with the Eagle Scouts making his like movie. And by the way, there's this very reminiscent of like Indiana Jones, and the last crusade. Um, uh, and in the, uh, uh, there's this great moment in the film where you first see Sammy give direction to actors for the very first I, I don't time. think that's in California. He stops making the movies after a while once he gets to California. Oh yeah, sure. That, that's like the end of Arizona, right? Yeah. Um, but there's this great moment where um, Sammy is giving direction to a fellow kid and like the kid is actually taking the direction like seriously or whatever, like figuring out his motivation and like Sammy like forgets to call cut. <laughs> and it's like this emotionally devastating scene, like like seeing it within the movie or whatever. And it's a very, very funny moment. And it just kind of gets to where we, when we get to the California years where you see that he is this sort of child prodigy when it comes to his like passion right and i'm not sure about you but i think the child the the california time is probably some of the best moments in the film because that's when the film actually gets really really fun well, i was gonna ask you about that like well i i i'd seen some people think it kind of like uh some some people thought it lost a little bit of its um a, a, a little bit of its power uh i don't know what the word is but I, I feel like some people thought it so lost a little something once it got to california and then like it's because it's it's not so close it's, it's maybe not quite as focused on like you know his, his him turning into a filmmaker parallel to the family dying down because they take the camera out of his hands at that point i mean i, I mean but there but so i was I, I, that was the next question i was gonna ask you was like what worked for you most in that corner of the movie because like i mean i was i still enjoyed it throughout but I, I was curious like what most resonated with you there okay so like the california section that's what the movie like I would say becomes more Sammy focused. I think the first two acts is more about like the marriage, right? Mm -hmm. And Sammy is like this passive observer, right? But then in the California section, uh, that's when we like see him go through the anti-Semitism of his high school and being a fish out of water. And then you also see him like getting bullied. But in addition to that, you you're introduced to a breakout performance by Chloe East as this. Um, very very religious christian girl that fetishizes sammy and probably one of the funniest moments or if not the funniest moment in the film he's taken to her bedroom where there's like a jesus christ crucifix <laughs> Can't say this, i grew up in a town that was like uh i was a jew in a town that was like 98 percent gentiles and 99 gentiles can't say this ever happened to me <laughs> yeah well and, and apparently like yeah he, he says this is very very true it feels the most true out of anything because it feels like the most like specific like specific yeah. incident right and there's a lot of specificity to it but yeah like um during the high school years um um his new girlfriend like uh coaxes him into uh filming senior ditch day right and in that sequence right there um you see like sammy like again where it's very clear he is not in control of his gifts as a filmmaker right he's filming the senior ditch days uh, sequence and when you're see uh, displaying it at prom 
uh, um, he kind of does this triumph of the will, like uh, 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 propaganda glamorization of his bully, right? Um, mm. uh, because like his bully is naturally photogenic, right? He's this uh, athletic jock and stuff like that. And then the more sociopathic bully played by the kid from Peach Dragon is made to look like a complete loser, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and several things happen there. One small moment is like when you see him filming the scene, right? You see like his girlfriend like dropping like ice cream on people. You don't really know how that's going to play out. It feels like a even like a tossed off thing. But when you see the movie, he makes it look like Pigeon is dropping shit on like uh, uh, on, on the beach uh, patrons, right? And it kind of kind of gets back to sort of like Spielberg himself as like this uh, savant like filmmaker, where like even then, like he knew how to infuse like his movies with um, these comedic uh, sight gags, right? For as much shit as Spielberg gets for like nineteen forty one. I find Spielberg to be a very, very funny director. And, like, I think one of his, like, signatures is his visual humor, right? Whether it's, like, in Jurassic Park where you have, like, the T-Rex uh, um, chasing uh, uh, the vehicle and you have, like, the objects uh, appear closer, <laughs> uh, or maybe closer than they appear uh, thing. Or, like, an E.T. where E.T. is hiding in the closet and he's made to look like all the other stuffed animals and stuff like that. But in this movie, like, there's a scene, like, in the tornado sequence where, like, he pulls off that visual humor with, like, small objects of these, like, grocery carts, like, rolling down. And I was like, ah, that's the classic Spielberg touch. But when the movie is displayed at prom, right, there's several things that happen, right? Um, the His bully that he glamorizes is like taken aback like everybody in the uh uh uh, in the auditorium um loves the thing like the girlfriend that he's been cheating on um falls back in love with the bully um um, and then like uh spielberg's girlfriend who had just broken up with him moments before um suddenly has the hots for him and in this wonderful like tracking shot you like you you see how everybody's reacting to the thing and the girl is like looking for like uh, Sammy, um, but only for him to have been gone, which is very reminiscent of like the Amy Adams character. And I catch me if you can, when like uh, Leo like abandons her and who's also comes from this very religious household. Then like you get the scene where he's up against the lockers and the bully cup goes looking for uh, Sammy and he confronts him and he's mad that he made him look so good in the video. And and he's questioning him why and there's a lot of like subtext there that's not set right um where like you know he he you know sammy has created this like image of this bully that he he knows he cannot live up to right but he will only disappoint people and i also think you know and this might be like the kushner influence here but i think there's even like a homoerotic subtext there as well right um um that like there's something troubling this kid and he can't fully articulate it but like that that movie struck a nerve they they make it they make it abundantly clear he doesn't understand why he shot him that way yeah Uh, and like so like i mean at that point i just kind of took it as like he does not understand the power of his own gifts uh yeah and yeah like you said because because of that like any reason why he shot the guy that way it it was subtext because like in 
it wasn't as simple as like, I'm going to make him like me. Like he, it wasn't like, I just want to be like one of the cool kids. It wasn't that it was something else. And he's like, and he doesn't even fully understand it, but he kind of comes to understand like, wow, I can, I, this is like a weapon for me, almost this camera. Yes. Yes. And there's even like a little joke, like towards the, uh, um, uh, the end of their, their little exchange where he's like, the boy's like, don't tell anybody I told you this or whatever. He's like, I won't. It's just our secret unless like I make a movie about it. <laughs> um, but but I think that's another example of sort of like the Spielberg humanism, where like again, like this bully is a lot more complicated than we understand, right? And he also kind of differentiates this bully between the other bully, who again they both hurl anti-Semitic slurs at uh, Sammy throughout, but it's clear like. One of them actually believes it. The other one is just kind of probably, yeah, yeah. And by the way, in real life, uh, Stephen talked about how like the jock bully actually reached out to him, and um, so like when um, uh, when he made Duel, right, the bully saw that movie and he saw Spielberg's name in the credits and called up Spielberg's office at Universal to speak with him. And then when Spielberg's secretary told him, "Hey, so and so is on the line," you know, he got like PTSD. He was like, "Oh shit." Um, and so he picks up the phone and the guy was just like, oh, hey, I just watched Duel and like it, it, we saw your name. It's like, is this true? Like, did you make that? Like, um, you really did become a filmmaker. Wow, that's really impressive. And it turned out that Bully became a cop. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's that. But yeah, like that, that like uh, sequence, I think there's just a lot going on there. Um, and there's a lot to unpack that isn't set. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, I, I think it can be interpreted any number of ways, but I think the most important thing is to understand it's like, a, it's, it's a point where he's like, cause at that point he had been like out of love with filmmaking for a while and he made the movie at the beach, but he, he doesn't seem very excited as it's being shown. But like, mm -hmm. I think, it, I think it's meant to be some kind of inspiration for him. And, and like, he is, he, he all he has already taken on a different tone at the point where he like leaves that scene and is like oh unless i make a movie about it like it's it's clearly it's clearly sparked something in him um i well i guess i guess there's two things i want to ask you about before we kind of go up and like uh kind of touch back on anything else in the movie we didn't already touch on which I'm, i know i'm gonna have a few other things i think of there but let me just like jump ahead to the end oh, well sorry. we didn't talk about judd hirsch Right. Well, we, we, we kind of already jumped ahead of Judd Hirsch, but I guess that kind of that also kind of ties into just everything in the movie and that like the message that they they they, they that they have him deliver. And it's one of the couple things that like um, that Spielberg says they kind of created for the movie. And I'm wondering. It's probably the, yeah, it's probably the scene that feels the least authentic. Right. It's the one that feels the most writerly, you know, mm -hmm. where like uh, Hirsch like delivers this like monologue about like sort of how like art is gonna you have to follow your you know you're an inherent artist you know artistry runs in your family like he's a circus performer the mom is a classical pianist and he's like telling uh, warning uh sammy like you have to follow your passion but by following your passion it's gonna make you a very lonely person it's gonna tear you away from your like family right um i, I kind of wanted to know what you thought about that sequence because you know i think judd hirsch is like very good in it but i think it's probably like the scene that like and i'm fine with it but i think it's the one that like it feels the least authentic to me yeah i mean again as i was watching it like i was assuming a lot more of the movie wasn't straight out of spielberg's life until i then listened to the pta interview and i was like oh okay <laughs> well so that's the one thing there and i'm like 
now that now that I think about it, like yeah, it's it, it, if 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 you were to tell me that like most of this is true, but maybe like a couple things aren't, like I can kind of tell that because it's like a very convenient message for the movie and mission mm-hmm. statement or, or thesis to be like, yeah, well, you can be a very successful. It's going to cost you a shit ton in your personal life, and I'm like, all right, that seems a seems a little on the nose, and like he mm-hmm. obviously at some point not long after that makes the choice to show his mom that video, um, and uh and has to grapple with the stuff we just talked about at the end with with the buoy and um i mean it's it, it, i mean I, I think judge her judge hirsch is delightful enough in the scene that like i can't really yeah. fault it too much but you're right it does maybe feel a little different and maybe not as of a piece of with everything else is like just about everything else does with everything else in the movie Mm-hmm. And by the way, like, there's one like um uh, uh stuff that we haven't covered before because we have talked about like the announcement of like the divorce when the parents announced the divorce, and there's a one moment where there's like a very impressionistic touch, right? Where like the uh Bert and Mitzi are announcing their divorce to the children, and um you know you have uh, Sammy's sisters um looking at them or whatever, and Sammy's off to the side, but we see in a mirror shot like him picturing himself directing this moment and it gets even more meta because the real life steven is directing this moment of his parents <laughs> announcing <laughs> their divorce it's just yeah and which kind of gets us to the end where um um the movie uh gets even more meta where um so after sammy graduates like high school he goes to los angeles and it's like probably one of the most devastating sequence in the film where like you know he's in college or whatever and he's living uh just with his dad um and he's coming back to his dad's apartment and he's having a panic attack and like this is after his parents have divorced and you know he's worried that you know he's he's getting rejected by all the like studios or whatever and his dad is like consoling him he's trying to make his son feel better or whatever um but uh his son gets uh, uh a letter in the mail and it's from his mom and it's a bunch of pictures and one of the pictures shows her and her new life back at home with their sisters and Uncle Ben. And his dad sees the picture and you can see he's clearly heartbroken. And in that moment, he says like um, to Sammy, you know, I probably should have stopped your hobby when I had the chance. Um, and like Sammy's kind of pleading with him. Can I drop out of school so I can like focus full time on this? And his dad at that point just relents. He's like, you know what, it's clear that this is your passion or whatever. Um, I'm just going to let you do it. But it's a scene that reminded me a lot of Catch Me If You Can. And it's actually a very uh, similar scene to In Catch Me If You Can, one of the last appearances uh, by the Christopher Walken character. And if you remember in that movie, um, Christopher Walken plays Leo's dad. And in that movie, like the parents divorce because um, uh, the mom cheats on the dad, right? And there's a scene towards the end of the film. It's the last appearance that we see the dad where um, Tom Hanks, the cop that's chasing uh, uh, Christopher Walken's criminal son, goes to their house and he's interrogating the dad, saying, like, do you know his whereabouts, blah, blah, blah. And the dad is clearly covering for him. And it also involves mail where, like, Tom Hanks sees a letter from his son and, like, Walken's like, I'm never going to give up my son. And it's a, but it's also, like, textually the scene, but you know, between like Leo is going to lose one fodder figure in favor of another. But in this scene, how like Paul Dano plays it, there's that quiet heartbreak, but him keeping his dignity 
throughout that I just found like just moving and devastating. That's the uh, uh, only other movie besides The Deer Hunter for which Christopher Walken got an Oscar nomination. Yeah, by the way, this is my take. This is my take. Um, <laughs> one thing I will say, right? I don't think Spielberg gets enough credit as an actor's director. Um, I think if you look at most of the actors he's worked with, if you're looking at their performances, I think at least one of their top five performances was probably in a Spielberg movie, like for the most part, right? And I think with Christopher Walken, I think Catch Me If You Can was the last time someone ever asked him to play something that was not a caricature of himself, right? Where he was actually in, playing character. In a movie. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. he got he, he got he did get an Emmy nomination that was not undeserved for severance earlier this year. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, like that sequence is uh I thought was like super devastating. And then it leads to um yeah uh Sammy gets a letter, acceptance letter a letter by CBS um to work on what is gonna be Hogan's Heroes and Fun fact, uh, Steven's editor, Michael Kahn, that's where he got his start, is on Hogan's Heroes. Um, hmm. So Sammy's in the office with Greg Grunberg, and it's uh, uh, and he gets his television job. And the, the guy there is like, hey, do you want to uh, talk to the greatest director of all time? And right across the hall, we see Sammy's favorite director. Because earlier in the movie, Sammy makes this Western inspired by uh, the movie The Man Who Shot liberty balance which is uh fitting because you know this movie is about fact versus myth and that's you know the overall theme of um, um the man who shot liberty balance which ends with the famous line when the legend becomes fact print the legend right and this is essentially spielberg printing the legend but he meets the one the only john ford played by david lynch um mm. and very 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 inspired casting yeah very funny cam very funny cameo of uh uh by david lynch where as john ford he plays john forrest this like grumpy old man like you see him first with like a bunch of kiss marks on his face being wiped down by his secretary and then he invites uh sammy into the office and berates him he's like what do you know about art and he tells sammy to look at the paintings and he asks sammy what are in these like what do you see in these Western paintings? And Sammy's like, well, I see cowboys and horses. And he's like, no. And he's like, look, where's the horizon line? And then one painting, he's like, it's at the bottom. Good. Next painting. What do you see? And then Sammy goes on to describe it. And he's like, no, no, no. Where's the horizon line? And it's at the top of the frame. And then like, um, the, uh, John Ford yells at him. He's like, okay, if, the the moment that you realize where to put the horizon light, maybe then that's when you can make a good picture. Picture um, until you realize that fuck off. And so Sammy leaves the office, right? And he's walking on a studio lot, and it's clear like this person's going to grow up to be Steven Spielberg. But the final shot of the movie, which is my favorite shot of this year, is um, next to the drone shots from Ambulance. Um, <laughs> My is uh Sammy's walking and towards the horizon and it's in the middle of the uh frame and the camera roughly adjusts so that it's now at the bottom. And I think sort of sums up sort of what I like about Spielberg is that he has this unique ability to visualize his human his humanistic themes, where you know, it's the overall theme of the movie, which is amidst the personal chaos of your life, you know you as an artist have to be focused on the horizon in front of you. And 
beautiful message to leave off of, even if it sounds hokey when I say it. Yeah, I had heard at some point that uh, David Lynch was in the movie, and then like I, I, I didn't even make the connection until after. Like, cause his, David Lynch has like a very distinct looking kind of headshot. If you ever just like see pictures of him and stuff like that, and like they, they, they put they put him under some facial hair and a cloud of cigar smoke, and I was like, and it, I was like, oh shit! After that was that happened, I was like, oh man, that's cool. They got him to go all out for it in in, in that way, and yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, and that's another thing where it was like my mom was asking me after the movie, she's like. Did that actually happen? I was like, I I don't know, mom. And like, it is. Gilbert it swears did. it was like word for word. I mean, like, which is which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, and not only that, but it's also fitting because I view Spielberg as John Ford's heir apparent. And so, for those who may not know, like John Ford was this Western filmmaker who was known for mythologizing the West and America's history. Right? He even made a movie uh, about Lincoln as well. Right? Um, and I. Kind Literally of, made a movie about a, a stagecoach out in the West, which uh, <laughs> you, you see Sammy kind of ripping off a little bit. Yeah, but I also think like, um, you know, just as John Ford was sort of America's um, myth maker uh, for the, you know, first part of the 20th century, I think uh, Spielberg like, you know, picks up the baton and becomes, you know, America's current, you know, uh, myth maker. When you think about like, uh, their sensibilities, right? Like, you know, um, they, you know, John Ford was this very pictorial uh, director, just like Steven Spielberg, but also received some of the same type of criticisms of Spielberg as being a very sentimental, schmaltzy director that may sometimes whitewash stuff. But like this movie to me um, felt like sort of Spielberg's Norman Rockwell painting, but, um, but kind of like Rockwell where, you know, you could be deceived by the warm colors, but underneath it, uh, Spielberg's depiction of Americana is one that is colored by anti-Semitism and also um, about a nuclear family that's about to implode, you know? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's overall, I mean, my big takeaway, the only other thing I was really going to even add if we before we gave our final odds and ends is that it's just like, I, it's just cool to add his age. Spielberg is like still kind of like, surprising and in in so much as like i think you expect them to do something that's like a little more a, a little more feel good at this point based on what we've seen in in recent years so it's kind of cool that he's just like at the end of the day like challenging us with something that's like so dark and uh uncomfortable like i kept waiting for like something because again like i i think i knew he was a child of divorce and but like at the same time like i, I was just bracing myself for a happier ending so it's just, By it's the just way, interesting. Um, um, oh, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but I was gonna say to that, like, you know, challenging yourself to do something dark. Um, um, and like Tony Kushner said in the writing of this film, right? Um, he was like, I was, I should pushing- say, West Side Story doesn't exactly end on a happy note. I'll, I'll give him credit. There. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is my take. This is my take for as much as people make Spielberg out to be this like feel good filmmaker or whatever. I always thought that was just a fucking surface level read of it, right? I think most Spielberg endings are bittersweet, right? Where he takes you on this journey where, like, yes, maybe the character ends on a happier note, but it's after they have experienced some type of loss, right? Where you think of like ET, right? It's like, yeah, like they get ET back, but also, you know, Elliot's never going to have this type of connection that he has with ET with anybody else, right? Um, you know, like you could go on and on. There's several, like, you know, Saving Private Ryan is a, a, another one. Um, 
where this person has to live with the fact that was he worth the sacrifices of other men, right? Or Munich, which ends on, you know, the image of the Twin Towers. Uh, And so Tony Kushner was saying, like, I was constantly pushing Spielberg to, like, not make sentimental choices. I kept telling him, like, this has to be like Munich, right? This has to be like Munich where you were super unsparing, right? Um, Which is, like, he considers... Even with your parents. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like, you have to feel uncomfortable. You have to feel uncomfortable, right? And, and, like, uh, one day during uh, the filming of the movie, you know, Stephen was like, okay, you keep talking, telling me, like, this has to be more like Munich. This has to be more like Munich or whatever. Um, on their rare day off, he's like, Do you want to come to my house and watch Munich? When was the last time you saw it? And they're <laughs> like, and Tony's like, not since the release. Yeah, me either. And so they watch <laughs> Munich <laughs> Munich together. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I, I I do think like you know, you definitely by the way, I will say this Kushner is the best late period Spielberg collaborator, right? Um, if like I think I don't even know who the, the other options are, but yeah. Well, I think the worst is Mark Rylance. Oh, oh, you're going for any kind of like actor, crew person, anything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I, 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 you're not going to get a strong pushback from me as someone that like strongly wishes that Sylvester Stallone had won Best Supporting Actor in 2015. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like, I do think uh, Kushner is sort of like, and Kushner actually, speaking of West Side Story, he, he said, like, they had one of the biggest fights they have ever had in their collaborations was um, the ending of West Side Story. Like, uh, Tony Kushner really liked, like, the monologue that's in the original movie, and he wanted to keep it, right? And he was mad that, like, Stephen wasn't, like, filming that, right? Because Stephen was off filming something else. And he, he like, think we're getting a huge heated fight, right? Um, one thing he said about it was, like, here's the thing with Stephen. Like, even though we got in this huge fight or whatever... Like the next day, he was like, "Hey, can I show you some pages of the Fablemans I'm working on?" And he was like, <laughs> I, "He was like kind of amused. He's like, oh, that's like Stephen's way of saying that he's still my friend.' <laughs> but like he was saying that like the thing that like they got in a fight about was that like he didn't understand what Stephen was doing, and what he was doing was he was framing the final shot of the film to be uh, up against the uh." you know, the railings or whatever, where it's, you see Chino going to uh, being uh, handcuffing, eventually going to prison. And you have like these bars to symbolize that. And he was like, oh, wow. Here was Steven making a very political like message. And he, and like Tony Kushner's like, you know, I'm the one who thinks that in our collaborations, I'm always like, pushing the more edgy political commentary or whatever. And here Steven did that in that movie um, in that one moment um, and being just shocked by that he went in that more cynical direction. But, you know, and also in this film, though, like in real life, Steve, the marriage of Steven's family has a happy ending. Right. So in real life, uh, after the divorce or whatever, you know, Stephen was estranged from his father, but they eventually made up around the time of uh, Saving Private Ryan. It was kind of funny, like his biographer, like was talking to his father and uh, about Stephen. And then um, uh, his father's like, I'm going to tell you the truth. I think you know more about him than I do. <laughs> uh, and but also like his father, his parents made up like they became very close. They remarried 
and they became very, very close friends uh, to the very end when they, like, died, where, like, they were both at each other's deathbeds, but, like, before that, they would take their spout, like, you know, they would go to, you know, symphony halls and watch uh, uh, classical musical performances uh, together with the with their two families. Um, so, you know, he, he, he didn't give you the, that type right, of right. He could have given you even a happier ending than he had to, and still yeah. kept it true. Yeah, so yeah. he... He was very uh, deliberate with like the way he like presented this particular portion of his story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Josh, any other anything else about the Fablemans that like I just kind of skipped over? I, I know I didn't really ask you much about. Uh, I, I guess I didn't really ask you much about John Williams or really we didn't talk that much about the scenes of like the young Spielberg making movies. But like I think we made it clear like it made it clear he was a. He, he was a genius, but he he wasn't pretentious in how he showed it here. But is there anything else that we didn't really touch on that you wanted to talk about? Um, you know, actually, the one thing I would say, right, um, was like back to that uh scene where he's like compiling the footage, editing, and it's revealed that his mom's having the yeah. Affair. We did kind of skip over that a little bit and how just how meticulous Spielberg was in directing that scene of yeah. Fable. But the one thing I would say is like you know how like in that moment like. Uh, not to get a little personal, but, like, there's that moment where, like, Sammy is looking at the footage and not realizing what he actually shot, right? And being taken aback by it. And I, I had a similar moment once, like, uh, like, uh, when I was doing, uh, like, a photography shoot where, like, uh, was, like, when I was editing the photos, I was just kind of shocked by what I had actually shot or whatever. And I, and it was just one of those things where I didn't even know what to make of it. I didn't even know what my personal opinion was, but it was, or what it said about me uh, as a person that, that I, I shot this thing or whatever. And so it was like, it was just a moment where like I, I, I could relate to, but I think like, you know, any creative person, um, maybe you don't have the gifts of Steven Spielberg, but might have a way into this thing. And it's not like a way that, feels very saccharine in terms of power of cinema as it may come across sure for sure i guess one other thing i want to mention before you wrapped up was that, like i i think we've only said gabriella bell's name once um mm -hmm. and i feel like you know yeah it's like maybe he's not a, a an actor on the level of the adults we've already talked about but like it i mean we would have said his name a lot more if he wasn't good in this movie you yeah know? And I mean, like, it's just like, it's such a tall order. Imagine just like being cast to play young Steven Spielberg with Steven Spielberg staring at you the whole time. Um, <laughs> so with, with that hanging over his head, I think it's pretty admirable the job he did in the movie and that like he, and I think you've probably watched more young Spielberg interviews than I did. I, I, from what I understand, like, and from what I can see, like, I can't dispute when people say like, he probably kind of does look like the young Spielberg a little bit too. I can't speak to the vocal mannerisms and all that, but like at the same time, I think that it might be for the best. Like maybe he's helped by the fact that he has Spielberg there to look at. Whereas Michelle Williams doesn't have Spielberg's mom there when she's preparing for this role. But it, also I think it probably helps him just know where to modulate it at the right places. Like I was uh, saying my mixed feelings on Michelle Williams performance earlier, but like, again, she's taking a lot of direction from Spielberg, Steven Spielberg without anything to kind of check it against. Whereas like Gabrielle Bell can like every single thing he does, he, he probably was studying Spielberg. I saw one of the interviews he gave where he was like questioning him like more aggressively than Spielberg was ready for. So, I mean, it, it, I, I just think it probably helps when it's like you're not just like going off of someone's idea of someone else, but you can kind of you, you can act based on all the archival footage. There is a Spielberg out there, but also having the man right there. And I think that had to have been a lot of pressure, but like he obviously did it well enough or else 
if he was noticeably bad, I think a ton of people would be talking about him. And I mean, he's sure he has a nice long career ahead of him, but like, uh, I think it's just, you know, he didn't drop the ball, which is the good thing yeah. here, you know? So, and by the way, like, you know, I, I, from what I tell from this like conversation we're having about the movie, um, I'm very enthusiastic about this movie. Now, like I love West Side Story just a little bit more. Um, and if I, and probably I would even put like Catch Me If You Can as like my, my favorite semi-autobiographical Spielberg film. But like, I, I was wondering, like, where do you see this, not to like rank every single film of his, but like, where do you see this like sort of like in its filmography in terms of like how it ranks for you? Yeah, I listened to the big picture where they ranked all them, and like, there's there's some I haven't seen. Like, I'm not a completist. Like, you probably are close to being. If you, if I'm sure there's anything. It. Yeah, I I only have like his TV movies. Like, I was like. gonna say, I I have a feeling you'd seen everything. Whereas, like, I I haven't seen like I, I honestly I think I mean probably the most high pro high profile of his movies I haven't seen is probably The Color Purple. But like, I I I, I like I've never seen 1941 either, which I know is like a unique one in his filmography for what it tries to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um so and i and I never even seen hook even though like a lot of people my yeah. age like kind of like swear by it so it's like i mean is this top tier or mid-tier like mm. i mean again like uh you, you're catching me off guard a little bit but like i mean i yeah am i gonna put it maybe like with like uh et and jaws and um which i mean i think are like probably most people's like in, in raiders of the lost ark i feel like are probably like people's like maybe like three favorite of his like at least the consensus with like the populist film goers and like i i wouldn't really quibble with anyone that didn't put the fablemans on that level but i certainly appreciate everything accomplished and like i i'm fine putting it like in whatever the next tier is after that more comfortably like i feel like you gotta probably sit for something a little longer before you like before you mm -hmm. would try and classify it with those other ones but like you know there's plenty of other ones i really really like also and it's like i i so i I wouldn't be mad with anyone that like considered it top tier, whatever top tier means. Like I'm not going to push back on that is what I would say. And for me, like, you know, as much as like, um, you know, I, like for me, my greatest show on earth was E.T., right? Mm -hmm. Where like that was like the first movie I saw that made me like movies, right? Also, and, a, a, a little E.T. callback in the early montages of him filmmaking, remember, in, in this movie where they have the skeleton jump out of the closet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of kids riding bikes or whatever, which is right. not as obnoxious as like you would think of the trail. Right. No, um, no, no, no. Yeah. But um, but like uh, for me, though, as much as like I love E.T. and Jaws and Indiana Jones and stuff like that. Um, for me, when I'm growing up as a young kid, like what made me like, I think, a Spielberg fan was his 2000s period. Right, I think the 2000s period where he has Munich, Minority Report, Catch Me If oh, You yeah. Can, and he's like responding to 9/11. I think that's his most interesting period as a filmmaker, right? Um, Followed by like arguably like his worst decade. <laughs> yeah. yeah, his worst decade, which is the 2010s, right? But so far in the 2020s, now he's like getting older in age, where I think he knows he only has a few films left in him, which you know. I'm your old auteur correspondent. Like, you know, if he lives to be Clint Eastwood, there might be like 20. Yeah, we got plenty. <laughs> if, he's sick, if, he, if, he, if he keeps his fastball as long as Clint has, then like we got plenty of more Steven Spielberg movies to talk about. <laughs> By the way, like his Spielberg's parents, they like his mom died at 97 and his dad died yeah. at 103. Like, <laughs> we might, we, 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 I mean, I, I don't think it's crazy to say he could keep doing it for another 15 years if he wants. Like, I think that's yeah. a not unreasonable expectation for us to have. Yeah. But this in West Side Story, it's really clear that he is going through his bucket list of like movies that he wants to make, 
right? Where he now is a little bit more precious of like his time. And I think it has, and maybe even COVID a little bit, um, and just naturally his own mortality. But I think like has his, his verve is back, right? He, he is now like uh, hitting his fastball, in my opinion. Um, after uh, a huge slump, <laughs> and it, which by the way, I, there there are movies in the 2010s that I like, uh, such as Lincoln, and I'll even go to bat for like Ready Player One or whatever. But I, yeah. so, what do you what do you make of him doing this Frank Bullet movie with Bradley Cooper? Then do you think that's in keeping with what you see him as wanting to now do with his time? All right, here's the thing: from BFG onwards, right? Anytime a Spielberg uh, project, with maybe the exception of Ready Player One. Um, every time a Spielberg project is announced, I'm sort of like, like with trepidation, I'm filled with some trepidation of like, what the fuck? Like, why are you going to re remake West Side Story? Like, uh, or like BFG, which was the most baffling because I'm like, third grade me could have told you that book is unadaptable. Um, hmm. But that being said, after West Side Story, I'm just like, yeah, if he wants to remake your classic like film go ahead like my thing with uh bullet my main concern is like steve why are you gonna like make propaganda like also i worry like um that it's gonna be another period piece like please make a contemporary or something like uh, i want to see him out of period uh 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 for once because it's been a while but um but yeah, so the last what was the last movie he made that was like set in like present day well ready player one takes place in the future so the last yeah, exactly. one i think yeah, so the last one will be War of the Worlds. I was going to say, yeah. Huh. Yeah, but I think, like, the appeal of that movie, I know he's not going to straight up remake Bullet. Like, I apparently he's just taking another Bullet story from the, the books or whatever, and he got Maestro, uh, Bradley Cooper, in it. Um, uh, but, like, I think the appeal of it is to do a great car chase sequence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, if you know that this is a man behind Duel, he's going to fucking knock that shit out of the park. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm cautiously, cautiously optimistic, but it does signal to me that he is very much in a fuck it period where he's like, yeah, I'm going to do a fucking musical. Yeah, I'm going to do my personal story. Yeah, I'm going to remake Bullet. Like, you can't stop me. I'm going to end this career on a Western. So, yeah, go for it, Steve. That's a I, I, that, that's a that's a strong note to go out on. So I'll, I'll I'll ask you now, whether it be some other Spielberg movie you want people to check out in light of this, or something else. Is there anything else you want to direct listeners to before we wrap up here? Uh, you know, my usual plug uh, for my letterbox account, uh, JKB sixteen twenty six, and my photography Insta at Brown Film Collective. That's it. Yeah, as far as other uh, content, I will plug at the moment. Uh, I finished the final season of Dairy Girls two days ago. Delightful. You um, and Martin Scorsese. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. Martin Scorsese is a fan of Dairy Girls? Yes, yes, he is. He he's attracted to the nuns, apparently. I'm gonna like I like I've said on a couple of recent podcasts, I'm gonna end up watching like a hundred total less movies this year than I did last year. And part of that's because I've had a miserable year at work. Part of it is just because like there's been a lot of great TV this year. So uh that's why I wanted to at least shout that out. Uh as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast email is realmoviepod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, uh, I'm going to have, I'm going to be after this, I'm going to be recording episodes, hopefully on both Armageddon time and on the Banshees of Inishirin. And then 
Uh, and also, I'm coming uh, back for Avatar, my guy. Well, yeah. Before we get to that, we're also probably gonna have one on Violent Night with our friend Daniel, and then uh, Josh is gonna show off his Navi skills for everyone as we talk about Avatar: Way of the Water. And if I can find time in this uh, crazy December of mine, then I'm gonna also force Josh to do our Pinocchio podcast with uh, oh, Joe Morgan. That's, that's about... <laughs> both, both, both Pinocchio <laughs> movies, because like he, he he wanted to claim Zemeckis way back when uh, when he wanted to be the guy for Welcome to Mars. So now he has to live with the consequences of his own actions for claiming the old art tours with, uh, uh, with, with like passion projects. Not saying it's going to happen because I've promised a few movies this year that haven't happened. But like, it's a thing that if I have time, Josh is legally bound to do. So, by the know. way, I do like, you know, I'm sort of, I always think of myself as the person that kind of does the movies that nobody wants to do. Like, I'm the old auteur dude, I'm the cry macho, I'm your Clint Eastwood correspondent mm-hmm. or whatever. I just like that I get to, you know, my my penance is like you know as much as i've done all the ones that are probably your least listened to episodes right i finally that's that's ben lubin's uh corner but yes yeah but now i have claimed the sequel to the highest grossing film of all time Mm mm-hmm yeah, uh, you know, again, like you, you staked out your old art tour corner, knowing that like Jim Cameron had like seven big more of these Jim. coming up. Big Jim, uh, big Jim, who uh, I feel like we're gonna. I feel like I mean, even though we probably now set the record for the longest uh, single guest single movie podcast episode, I think you know Avatar Two: Way of the Water might just blow that out, blow that out of the water. No pun intended. When uh, we spend half of that time talking about his press tour, which I know you've gotten a real kick out of. So wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Quick question. Quick, wait, what was your um, longest single guest uh, uh, episode? Probably something that Ben Lubin came on for. And now he's going to like challenge himself to like uh, to, to like break this uh, now. But like, I mean, like m- most most of the really long ones are like with two people, you know, so it's like I got to like I mean, I mean, oh, it's probably honestly probably Elijah with Wand. You know, okay. so that was an hour right. 32 and we're going on like an hour 50 right now. So all right. Uh, here's the record. I want to break with that podcast. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we? Do it underwater. What if it's your first underwater <laughs> podcast? Um, uh, I mean, I, honestly, I could probably come closer to speaking Navi underwater than I can uh, above water. So that 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 that's one thing to kind of look at right there. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, to, to be determined how that will go. I I I got I I'm really I am I am upset. I missed uh, the Avatar re-release in theaters a couple months ago. Um, how dare so- you! I, again uh life work it all got in the way i i, I wish i had done it because i mean now i'm going to force myself to like watch it on like my laptop or my uh my smart tv instead to refresh my memory because i don't know if i've ever actually revisited it since i saw it in theaters <laughs> josh 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 i know you're this high-powered lawyer right this corporate mm-hmm. attorney right however big jim all right he he turned away from sustainable agriculture. He he turned away from his school that he set up. He turned away from deep sea diving to find time to make five avatars. All right, I think you could have found time to see Avatar in its re-release. I'm just saying. Uh, well, I apologize, Big Jim. I, I'm I'm sure you're not really hurting for money though. Um, <laughs> so everyone, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again to Josh Brown for joining me. And we'll see you next time in Navi.